Genesis 15. This is the word of God. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. We thank God for his word. Oh. And didn't they do well getting all those ites at the end there <laughs> correctly? Uh, thanks, Caleb. Is there a seven o'clock club tonight? Isn't there? Yes, there is. Yeah, so if any uh, younger boys and girls want to go to seven o'clock club, you, you can go um, right now. And we're, <coughs> we're going to keep uh, our Bibles open at uh, Genesis 15. Um, was it last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, we were looking at the first six verses, so tonight we're really picking up at verse 7, and we're thinking about, yes, this great word uh, and this great idea 
of the covenant. Let me uh, just pray briefly as we come to God's holy word that he will indeed speak into our hearts and minds. Father, we desperately need your help uh, in these moments uh, because we're, we're opening your word. It's yours. Uh, this is your church. Uh, this is your worship service. And so we pray you will be the focus and you will grab our attention and our hearts. Bless us, Lord, now as we study together in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, one of my biggest regrets from the early years of my ministry was not knowing of or benefiting from the ministry of a man called R.C. Sproul. I don't know if anybody recognize uh, that face. Um, his ministry was called Ligonier. Uh, actually, during the summer, uh, I read his biography. He died there just a number of years ago. Uh, in those days, back in the early 1990s, the internet was young and minute in comparison to what it is today. And if you were going to access the teaching of R.C. Sproul, then you had to do it with a thing called cassettes. Does anybody remember those things? Uh, cassettes and even other things called books. You had to read them. Uh, that's how you accessed uh, this man's teaching. Now, of course, everything is available online. I highly recommend him to you. Probably... He's uh, the greatest theologian of the 20th and 21st century, probably, depending on, of course, your opinion. And he's one of my uh, go-to theologians if I want to check uh, to see if what I think or say is right, because generally speaking, he's right, and if I agree with him or he agrees with me, then we're, we're, we're doing okay. This is what he wrote in one of his books. Listen to this. I often tell people, that if I were marooned on an island and had only one book, the book I would want with me, of course, would be the, I think we can guess that, the Bible. If I could have only one book of the Bible, I would want to have the book of Hebrews because of the way in which it so richly summarizes all the teachings of the Old Testament and relates them to the finished work of Christ in the New Testament. So one book would be the Bible, one book of the Bible would be Hebrews, but then he continues, but if I could have only one verse of the Bible, I would want Genesis 15, verse 17. There, I put it up on you. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, you're probably thinking, R.C. Sproul is as mad as McNeely is. How could that be his favorite verse? But this verse set his heart on fire. The whole passage, but especially this verse, blessed him when he was attacked by doubt or by fear. Why? Because of that word theophany, the appearance of God. In this verse, we see a visual manifestation of God. The smoking fire pot the flaming torch. Now, God, of course, is invisible. He is a spirit being. No one can see him. He has got no physical structure, unless, of course, he appears in some physical form. Now, of course, the Bible does make reference to the arm of God or perhaps the eyes of the Lord. That's common. But that's only to accommodate our weakness. 
The, the point is to help us understand that he's strong, the armor of God, and that he can see the eyes of the Lord. But he is a spirit being. That's why, of course, the incarnation is so very important. Because Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh. The invisible God took on substance. Now, that's unique, of course. But what we have is a series of Old Testament theophanies. They're rare, but they're incredibly important. Where God uses something of creation, something of the created order, to make himself known visibly. Now, one of the best examples for Presbyterians, of course, is the... Oh, go on, you're not too shy. The burning bush. The burning bush. Where God was in the flame of that burning bush. Holy ground, says Moses. I can't stand here. He fell to the floor. The pillar of fire was another example of that as the people of Israel traveled through the wilderness. Fire and light, by the way, were most often used by God uh, to make himself known. The point is, of course, the invisible God making himself known in physical form so that we could, we could comprehend it, we could understand it, we could see it. In Job 37, for instance, the theophany comes in the form of thunder. The one who wrestles with Jacob in Genesis 32, again, another form of that. And the one who appeared in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, same. Many, many examples of God making his appearance on earth for us to learn something of him and who he is and what he's going to do. Genesis 15, verse 17 is another one. And R.C., as he's affectionately known, R.C. would say, when I doubt, when I'm in fear, I go to that text. And I say, God came and he made a covenant with his people. And I'm part of that people. And he's not, going to, he's not going to let me down. He's not going to deny me. He's not going to forsake me. But let's, as introduction, think about how he describes himself there in verse 7, how God describes himself. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Notice the word Lord there in capital letters, Yahweh, means I am the self-existent one, um, self-sustaining with zero needs. Basically, that term, the Lord, with capital letters, Yahweh, says I don't need anyone. I don't need anything to exist. I don't need my creatures for anything. They need me for everything. My creatures need me. There's no doubt about who the focus in this passage is on in this story. It's on the Lord. I am the Lord, he says. That's the anchor point. Let's not forget that. It's the Lord in the story who makes this covenant with his people. But look at the end of verse 7. He says, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And what he's saying there is, Abram, Abram, just in case you've forgotten, let me remind you what I have done. Let me remind you what I've done. I chose you. 
I could have chosen a thousand other men, but I chose you. I have called you. I could have called a thousand men, but I called you. Out of paganism, out of heathen moon worship where he had lived. And he says, I did that. I called you. I chose you so that you might have this land on which we're standing right now. This land, of course, the land of Israel as we might know it as, was central to the story of redemption. Think about it. The prophets who prophesied, prophesied in that land. The kings ruled over the people in that land. The priests performed the rituals in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in that land. Until, of course, Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, came and ruled. This land on which Abram was standing in this conversation with God, this land was the stage for the Bible story. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. Called out of Ur, called in to God's eternal plans. Now, of course, if you're a child of God this evening, that's exactly what's happened to you, has it not? You've been called out of sin and rebellion, and you've been called in to Christ and to salvation. If you've been called out of sin and rebellion, don't keep messing up in there. He's called you out. He's called you into something greater and better. Called out of the evil world system, called into the kingdom of God. So that's how he describes himself. But then, of course, there's this query in verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's a genuine question. Now, some have a problem between the, the statement of verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness, and verse 8, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? Does one not contradict the other? He's saying, I believe, um, but how, how can I know? I, I believe, but how can I believe? It reminds me so much of... <clears throat> the story of the man, the father in Mark 9, and the Jesus healing a boy who had an evil spirit. Do you remember the story? It's not that terribly well known. I think it's only in Mark's gospel. The father explains the torment <clears throat> that his son had experienced. And as we said, he said, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible to him who believes. And immediately, in a flash, the father says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it. Yeah, you're the sovereign one, Lord, yeah. You're the supreme one, but what proof 
What proof can you give me? This land is full of the people as verse 19 and 20 and Caleb caught the names right when he pronounced them. Full of all kinds of tribes and nations. The place is packed full of people. How how am I ever going to get the land that you've promised? I believe. I hear you. But, 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 help me. Show me some more proof. And in case we get on our high horses with Abraham and say, this is ridiculous, don't we often ask questions like that of God? Don't we? I know you're in control, God. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to preach about it. I'm going to pray about it. But please, just show me once again, again, that you really are in control. Will you fix this in such a way that I will see it and believe? Or perhaps we, oh, Lord, I hear what you say about the forgiveness of my sins, but, but could you show me, could you show me another time that my slate is clean? Or I hear your promises, I read your promises, but will you help me believe? The query, how can I know? You see, we can believe and yet struggle with belief. So what does God do? Does he leave Abram in his misery? Does he leave us in our misery? No. So we get to, I suppose, the the bulk of the text here. In verses 9 to 11, we see the covenant preparation. Okay, Abram, God says, I hear you. I know you. I love you. I have plans for you, so I'm going to help you. And he says exactly the same to us tonight, by the way. He loves us, and he knows us. He knows where we wrestle and where we struggle, and he wants to help us to believe. God says, Abram, I'm going to give you clear evidence that I will keep my promises, and I will enter into covenant relationship with you, and I will show you with a, in a visible, tangible way that you will never forget it. And R.C. Sproul will never forget it. And the people of RPC and the wider church will not forget it. I'm going to show you. Here it is, verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Very clear instructions, eh? These animals, of course, would later be part of the sacrificial system. They were three years old. That means they were mature animals. And this is going to be part of the ratification ceremony for all the promises that God has made. God says, I've made you promises. Now I'm going to make a covenant with you. And part of the process of the covenant is we're going to go through this ritual of cutting these animals. Very, very particular instructions were given um, there about what what he uh, ought to do with them. Verse 10, Abraham obeys. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged them, the halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Abraham doesn't waste time. He he doesn't question the instructions. He, He knows exactly what's happening. He knows what's happening. Maybe we struggle to know what's happening, but he knows exactly what's happening. He cuts the animals in two, and lays each half opposite each other. This is so unfamiliar to us. 
to our modern ears and our modern eyes. It's, in fact, it's rather weird. In fact, you mightn't be a believer tonight and you're wondering, what on earth is happening here? Well, as I say, Abram knew exactly what to do. The custom in the ancient world, especially in Abram's homeland, was that when two parties were solemnizing a promise or covenant, they would kill an animal and they would divide it in two. And both parties would walk between the two parts of the animal. And this ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse should either party break the covenant. And basically what you were saying is, as you walked through the two sides of the animal, you were saying, if I break my side of the bargain here, let this happen to me. Let me be cut in two. So you can see now the sense of this ceremony. If I break my word, if I break my promise, may I become like the severed animal. May, may this be done to me if I break the terms of the relationship I'm making with you. And this relationship could be between man and man, of course, or tribe and tribe, or in this case, between God and Abraham. Kill me. Cut me if I break this covenant. By the way, the word behind, um, or the idea behind the word um, covenant literally means to cut. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, phrase, maybe you don't use it, but you're, I'm sure you heard it, but cutting a deal. Have you heard that phrase, cutting a deal? Well, this is the background uh, to that idea. Verse 11, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. <clears throat> now, we're not sure just what the significance of this is, but some of the commentators would say it's probably a prophecy of the attacks that would come upon Abram and his descendants from the world and God's protection of his people and God's protection of his promises to bless the world and to bless his people, to bless Abram and his offspring. So that's probably what verse 11 is about. But as we go to verse 12, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the deep sleep about? As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Why the deep sleep? Because of a theophany. Because God is appearing. And God is basically saying, Abram, actually, it all depends on me. It all depends on my rule and my reign and my answer. I'll be the covenant keeper and I will pay the price when you break the covenant, as you will. Just go to sleep and let me do the work. And verse 12 there, that thick and dreadful darkness is very dramatic. It's an extremely traumatic experience. It's not unlike Isaiah 6. That's why we read from that at the beginning of the service, the shaking of the temple, and woe is me. Not unlike Revelation 1 verse 17, where John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. You see, when people in the Bible came into contact with the living God, 
they tended to drop down in terror. The ground shook. Buildings shook. Dreadful darkness. Holy fear and awe. Not quite like the so-called reports from the heaven tourism movement. I don't know if it's still popular. There There was a series of these books written some time ago. I hope you didn't read any of it because it's absolute nonsense. The idea is somebody dies, goes to heaven for 90 minutes. I think actually one of the books is called 90 Minutes in Heaven. I shouldn't have said that because you might go and buy it now. Have a cozy chat with God and then come back again. Pure fiction or impure fiction. When we face God, it's more like verse 12. It's more like verse 12. A dreadful darkness came over him. We dropped down in awe. We're knocked out in sleep. Woe is me. So the preparation is important, but then we're given the details in verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there's lots of details uh, in this section about the future. And if, you're, if you um, have an ear for the Bible story, you will know that those verses refer particularly to the story of the Exodus, or the slavery in, in Egypt and in the Exodus. Uh, God says, I know the future, Abram. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen because I'm in total control of the future. Verse 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own. This will happen, and of course, as we know, this did happen. The slavery in Egypt was a time of great abuse. They lived there as aliens and strangers for 400 years, or 430 years to be more accurate. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. But you know, the word but in, in the Bible is very important. Yeah, you're going to be there for mistreated and enslaved for 400 years, but I will call you out. I will call you home. I will bring you back to this land. I will punish your oppressors. I will give you great possessions. And all of that is spelt out in detail in Exodus. The 10 plagues damaged and broke the resolve of Pharaoh. The Red Sea drowned and destroyed the army of Pharaoh. You will come home, he's saying, as a nation. You will be here, because I've promised this to you. Verse 15, you, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Abraham, you're not going to see this, of course, but it's going to happen. You're going to die in peace, and you will go to your and God's eternal home. But verse 16, your people will return, and the Amorites will be punished. 
They will be removed from the land that belongs to God's people. Notice that verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, what does that mean? Well, at that particular moment, the Amorites were a sinful people, yes. And they represent kind of all the peoples in the land mentioned in verse 19 and 20. But, God says, their sin has not yet reached full depravity, not yet reached full perversity. In other words, God was giving them an opportunity, an opportunity, in a sense, to respond, to repent, to live in a good and spiritual way. And this points again to what we should know and what we should, I suppose, glory in, the patience of God. God is patient beyond human calculation, but he does set a limit, you see. And that's what verse 16 is saying. He does set a limit to where a nation or a people can go. For instance, Sodom and Gomorrah hit the limit and God judged it. And we're going to see that in chapter 19 in a few weeks' time. But the Amorites, uh, sliding into ever greater sinful activity, yes, they were. But notice what he says, they had not yet reached its full measure, uh, uh, their sinful activities. But they were going in that direction. I mean... The practices that were going on in Canaan at that particular time were almost beyond um, understanding. Leviticus 18, for instance, lists 12 varieties of incest that were endemic in Canaan at that particular time. That's the kind of world it was. Ultimately, God says, a day of judgment would come. In the meantime, we see the patience of God. Some, you see, do you get annoyed that when Moses brought the people and then Joshua brought the people into the land and just basically, whoosh, just most of them away, that this was an act of aggression? No, it's not. That's why Derek Kidner is right when he describes Joshua's invasion of Canaan as an act of justice, not an act of aggression. An act of justice not an act of aggression, because this land belonged to Abram and his descendants. So the emphasis here in Genesis 15 is the gracious patience of God, not the cruel wrath of God, as some would claim. God is patient. And we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful that he's patient with us as a nation. We should be thankful that he's patient with us as a church. We should be thankful that he's patient with us as individuals. But we can go too far. We can. As individuals, as a church, and even as a community or nation, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. We can get to the full measure. And we will be judged. If, if you, as an individual tonight, if you are willfully sinning, willfully sinning, and you know it, 
It could be lust, it could be greed, it could be selfishness, it could be slander, it could be a multitude of sins. The catalog of sins is endless, is it not? If you're willfully sinning and you hear the call to repentance and you don't repent, then know that one day we will reach the full measure and we will be judged. Ray Ortland, and his, I think his commentary on Isaiah talks about true worship being ongoing confession and ongoing repentance. I find that helpful. That's what true worship involves, ongoing confession, ongoing repentance. We don't presume on the patience of God, and we don't take advantage of the graciousness of God. There is a limit. There's a point of no return for the Amorites, for the United Kingdom, for Ireland, for the church, and for me and you. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Now, I can't imagine we in the United Kingdom have far to go to reach the end of God's patience. I just wonder how long He will let us have our own way. I mean, the moral and spiritual darkness is ever growing. It's really Romans 1, is it not? being lived out, God giving us over, God giving us over, God giving us over to basically our depraved minds. 4,136. That's an interesting number, isn't it? 4,136. But the population of Moira village, 4,136 babies have been aborted in Northern Ireland since March 2020. As a nation, we should hang our heads in shame. As a people tonight, there should be weeping. How long? How long before we reach the full measure? God have mercy on us. Gay marriage celebrated. The darkness of Halloween, which we will evidence possibly tonight and tomorrow, promoted. The physical and mental abuse of children in regards to gender issues defended. Lord have mercy. The list goes on. Lord have mercy. And even if it's a church holding on to stuff that isn't of the gospel, Lord have mercy. Our man-made traditions, God have mercy. Our refusal as a people to follow the word of God, Lord have mercy on us. We should thank God for his patience. Yeah, we should. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, if the iniquity of the world had been full 100 years ago, none of us would have been born to be born again. Lord have mercy. This preview of history encouraged Abraham, Abram to be Abraham soon, 
and I hope it encourages us. God is sovereign. Yeah, he gives, he gives us, yes, sometimes the freedom to do things that we shouldn't do. In his sovereignty, over time and space, he shows us what his will is, and he calls us to obey it as, as nations, as people, as churches. But in his sovereignty, his patience will end, his judgment will begin, and in his judgment, without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. So God's patience is our only hope, shown in the gospel. God's judgment is surely coming. But let's think, <clears throat> lastly, of the covenant enactment, verse 17. When, this is after all this has happened, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. Now, maybe initially you thought, this is wild stuff. Maybe now you're beginning to see what's happening. God reveals himself. God personally appears. He makes himself visible in a way that we could begin to understand. And in the darkness of the night, he comes in glorious light. The darker the night, the brighter the light and there seems to be just this one object, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, like a volcano, almost. A big pot with heat and light. And lights shooting up, heat shooting up like flames. God is present. God is there. And fire sign of the blazing, purging, testing, judging presence of God, the fire of judgment and the light of truth together. Beautiful imagery. We can understand those things, can't we? No one, no one could stand beside him, not even in this form, not even in this form. That's why Abram's asleep. This is not a bilateral covenant with two parties. It's a unilateral covenant. One party. Only God walked through. you notice that? When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch appeared and passed, and passed between the pieces. Only he did that. And God's saying, he's saying to the whole world, and he's saying to us tonight, if I don't keep this covenant that I'm making with Abraham and his offspring, may I be ripped apart just like these animals. May I die just like these animals. May I be destroyed just like these animals. Let it be done to me. God, in a sense, swears by himself. And he's saying, you can count on me. You can take this promise to the bank. You can trust me. Why? Because I am God. And I am obligated to myself, and I will keep every promise, Abram. I will keep it to you and to your offspring. No matter what, Abram, I will be your God. No matter what sin you commit and your people commit, I will be yours and you will be mine. No matter how my people feel, I will forgive because I am God. I am making this covenant with you. But we know the story. We failed. Abram failed. 
And the story of the Bible and the story of history is just a story of failure after failure after failure. We sin, we rebel. So what's God going to do? He's made a promise. He's made a covenant. What's he going to do? Here's what God does. God, the ever-living and eternal God, took on human flesh and tasted death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abram. God, ever-living and eternal, took on human nature and tasted death in the place of people like you and me. He did this in Jesus. What happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus is torn in two, basically. On the cross, Jesus is ripped apart. On the cross, Jesus is killed so that we might experience the blessing of the eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. Jesus becomes our substitute. And Jesus bore the price of our sins so that we might know God and receive his righteousness. What a savior God we have. We mess up. What does he do? He cleans the mess up. We break the covenant. What does he do? He fixes the break. We sin. He forgives. We rebel. He dies. What a savior God he is. Creator God. Sovereign over history. Saving sinners. And had he not made this unilateral covenant none of us would believe. I hope you see that. None of us would have believed. If he hadn't made this covenant eternal, we would be lost. All those years ago, uh, this was done. So if it hadn't been an internal covenant, we would be lost. If he had not made this covenant based on grace, we would die eternally. Here's another one of my heroes, James Montgomery Boyce. Listen to this. Put the words up as we come to an end tonight, this is what Boyce says. Yet, the sovereign, eternal, gracious God did establish his covenant, and he confirmed it not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of his own Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And during the three hours of darkness, when Jesus hung upon the cross, God moved in the darkness to ratify the covenant And because of Christ's death, we shall never perish. Neither shall any man snatch us out of his hand. The story of the gospel is spelt out boldly and clearly here in Genesis 15 verse 17, where we see God's promise to his people. We see security We see security for R.C. Sproul and for people like you and me. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, one of my favorite verses, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Genesis 15, verse 17, is about you and me and us 
and all the rest of God's people saved by the grace of the one who made the promise and who kept the promise and who paid the price for our failure to keep the promise. So salvation depends on God, the God who establishes an eternal, unchangeable, and gracious covenant, and the God who keeps it. Tonight, within our hearts and souls, there should be an overflowing of gratitude. God, thank you. Thank you for this promise. And thank you for keeping it. And thank you that when we didn't keep it, you paid the price. May God help us to have such a relationship with him. Father, we thank you. You're such a God of love. And you're such a God of grace. And we thank you for this very special relationship that you have with your people. And the, the distance you went to make sure that this covenant would be an eternal one, an everlasting one. And we pray that as we go from this place, when we're tempted to doubt and when we're tempted to fear, may we remember we are in the hands of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who's paid the price for our sin so that we might indeed be your people. And one day, you're not going to take us back to Canaan you're going to take us to heaven. Thank you for that wonderful promise that you're going to fix this broken world and recreate it for your people and for yourself. Praise your wonderful and gracious name. Amen.